old pilot's plain tales. I counted them all out. The Falkland Islands are about 300 miles east of the coast of Patagonia and 750 miles north of the Antarctic. They're a small self-governing territory but protected by the British government and as such referred to as a British Overseas Territory. The small group of remote islands have variously been occupied by French, Spanish, British and Argentine settlements but after laying claim to them initially in 1690 the British re-established rule in 1774 and then again in 1832. By 1840 the islands had been declared a crown colony and a permanent pastoral community of Scottish settlers were established there. The islands continued to be overseen by the British government, but the Argentines disputed ownership and had long wanted to claim this tiny patch of land for themselves. President Juan Perón claimed sovereignty in the 1960s and the United Nations asked both countries to reach a peaceful settlement on the ownership issue. Whilst the British government quietly conducted behind-the-scenes negotiations and encouraged closer trade ties with Argentina, the Falkland Islanders themselves strongly lobbied the UK Parliament to remain British. Talks between the countries continued through the 70s and into the 80s, but then unexpectedly following a period of devastating economic stagnation and large-scale civil unrest against the ruling military junta, on Friday the 2nd of April 1982, the Argentine military invaded the islands. The small British military force that were established on the main island at Port Stanley were soon overwhelmed, and for the first time since the Second World War, hostile foreign troops forcefully occupied British sovereign territory, marching through the streets of Stanley and subjugating British citizens. Following earlier intelligence reports, the UK had already dispatched two Swiftsure-class nuclear submarines to the area to establish a naval presence, and very quickly a 200-mile exclusion zone was created around the islands. At one point, HMS Splendid shadowed the Argentinian aircraft carrier Ventisinco de Mayo, ironically a ship that had previously served with the Royal Navy, and would have engaged her had the captain been able to accurately confirm his position. However, although she presented a grave threat to the British task force, which had by now arrived at the islands, Following the sinking of the Argentinian cruiser General Belgrano, the aircraft carrier returned to port and did not sail again. It had taken the British task force four weeks to sail the 8,000 miles to the Falklands, and amongst the fleet were two aircraft carriers, the Invincible and the Hermes. The Hermes was the old lady of the Royal Navy, having been first commissioned in 1959 and sailed many millions of miles since. She wasn't a large carrier, but
but she successfully flew supermarine scimitars and de Havilland sea vixens off her decks, but she was unable to cope with the next generation of jets, the Phantom and Buccaneer, so had been fitted out as a commando carrier for Royal Marine operations. When the Royal Navy equipped with the Sea Harrier, she was fitted with a ski jump launch deck, and after sailing for the Falklands, she embarked 16 Sea Harriers, 10 RAF Harrier GR3s, and 10 Sea King helicopters, and she served as the flagship of the British forces. During the voyage out to the islands, many on board thought that Hermes would be a big enough stick to threaten the invading forces and thought that the Argentinians would simply give up their illegal occupation. However, as they pressed south and the temperatures dropped, the mood gradually changed. Amongst the small group of Harrier pilots was Dave Morgan. He would become a captain with Virgin Atlantic, but then he was an RAF flight lieutenant. Only a month or two earlier, he had been detached from the RAF to work with the Navy flying sea harriers. Only part of the way through his conversion course, when the conflict broke out, he was told that anyone who could fly an aircraft was going, and they needed him to embark his harrier onto Hermes on Sunday. It was to be his very first deck landing, and they sailed the next day. During the journey, the pilots set about their daily routine of planning and practicing the live missions that they would have to perform for real. Air-to-air combat, ship attacks, and they dropped an example of every live weapon that Hermes carried. In the South Atlantic, it was autumn, and storms were gathering. But despite being outnumbered ten to one by the Argentinian aircraft, they were confident of being able to give a good account of themselves. They received their final mission briefings, memorized their escape and evasion instructions, and were issued with a personal Browning 9mm automatic pistol. In the quiet times, many wrote last letters to wives and loved ones in case they didn't return home, and then it was back into the comforting routine of preparing to fly. Sitting in his cockpit, Dave China graphed a few marks on the head-up display in case he lost his display data, some from a normal flying position and a few from a crouching position, where he expected to be when under fire. As he planned their first assault on Stanley Airfield, Dave was aware that it was essential that everyone needed to carry out their individual roles as perfectly as possible. All prepared, it was at 6.40am when the ship's broadcast system bellowed out. Now hear this. Stand clear of jet pipes and intakes. Start sea harriers. Dave held up five fingers to his plane captain, one for each ejector seat pin, and then wound up his Rolls-Royce Pegasus and ran through his checks. Twelve sets of anti-collision lights were flashing, indicating that all the Harriers in this wave were serviceable and ready. A quick glance at the map whilst the carrier turned into wind, and then with the green light on, the flight deck officer dropped his green flag, and the first Harrier 
scream down the deck. Dave immediately taxied into position and with a nod slammed the throttle full forward. Ten tons of thrust powered him down the deck and up the ramp and he flicked the nozzles down to support the weight of the aircraft as at 17 knots he was well below the stall speed. As the fighter accelerated he rotated the nozzles aft Within a few seconds he had his wheels up and was already cutting the corner to join up with his leader. Every five seconds another Harrier powered off the ramp until the whole formation was airborne and heading for the planned landfall at McBride Head. Scouring the sky, Dave spotted a couple of dark shapes hugging the sea. Break port, bogies, left ten low. Everyone heaved their jets into a screaming left turn, but the shapes turned into two more Harriers on their way to attack the grassed airfield at Goose Green. As the coast loomed up in the early morning light, it looked like the craggy shoreline of Scotland, where Dave had done so much of his training. Down the coast, they soon hit their initial point, only 90 seconds from the airfield. By now, in three sections, four aircraft were pulling up to toss 1,000-pound bombs onto air defence weapon sites. Three others were setting up to attack from the northwest. Andy Ald led Dave's three ship to the east side of a pair of 900-foot hills north of Stanley. Creaming along at 500 knots, Dave could see the grass tussocks whipping past his aircraft and as they came around the hill, their target came into view. The entire peninsula that held the airfield seemed to be alive with explosions. Anti-aircraft shells carpeted the sky over the runway so thick they seemed to present an unpenetrable wall. The fiery tails of missiles smoked across the sky and long wavering lines of tracer crisscrossed but then began to weave his way, churning up the sea all around. There was a moment of horror when the realisation that this wasn't a game anymore came to him. But then it all became business as his years of training took hold. He hauled the Harrier left and right between the islands and rocks automatically dropping down even further. Still accelerating, he was suddenly aware of soldiers firing from the tops of sand dunes above him. Dave flicked up the trigger switch to squeeze off some 30mm cannon shells, but instead of the expected roar of his Aiden guns, nothing happened. It was only later he realised that he'd left the gun's master switch off. Instead, he flattened the defenders with his jet watch as he pitched the Harrier to climb to 150 feet, the minimum drop height for his weapons. Ahead of him, he could see smoking hangars and aircraft lolling drunkenly, badly damaged from the first attacker's run-through. The fuel dump was a storm of orange flame and huge lumps of debris were still falling from the grey sky. He quickly lined up on a seemingly undamaged little island of transport aircraft, raised the safety catch and mashed the bomb release button. The weapons came off in turn and after a short delay 
each blew off the bomb casings to expose the 147 bomblets which were ejected to form a cloud of death that could cover a football field. Holding his aircraft level whilst the weapons released, he was suddenly rocked by a huge explosion and his Harrier began to vibrate like a road drill. It became impossible to read any instruments, but he still seemed to be flying, so he dove for the ground, going past the tower windows that were only 20 feet up and straight into a cloud of black smoke. He paused for a second or two and then turned hard east to clear the high ground and run out to sea. Punching back into the clear air, his radar warning receiver screeched the bad news that a radar-laid anti-aircraft gun had locked him up. Despite the damage he'd suffered, it was no time to be gentle, so Dave flew a bone-crunching 6G brake and then flicked out his air brakes, inside of which had been secreted packets of aluminium chaff. The Sea Harrier didn't have an integral chaff and flares system, so this was the best that could be devised. The chaff decoyed the radar and the danger fell behind as he ran out to sea. Clear of the target area and safe, they climbed and checked in on the radio. It was expected that they might lose two or three aircraft in the raid because of the intensity of ground defences, but Day felt a huge wave of relief and elation flow through him as everyone checked in, all were safe. As he slowed for the transit back to the ship, the vibration reduced and now able to read his instruments, he realised that only one gauge didn't work, his rudder trim indicator. Back overhead Hermes, he got a visual inspection from another aircraft which revealed, to quote, a bloody great hole in his tail. The aircraft seemed to be flying okay, but it was possible that the reaction jets that controlled the Harrier in the hover were damaged. So Dave hung back until everyone else had landed and then flew a rolling landing, running onto the deck with quite a bit of forward speed. It wasn't an approved manoeuvre since there was no hook and wire system to stop the fighter from rolling off the far end of the deck. Setting up from a mile away, he dropped his gear and flaps and approached straight in. He got his speed back to 50 knots and the aircraft remained controllable but as he got closer, he saw more and more faces appearing around the deck wanting to get a closer look. Landing about 50 feet in, he safely braked to a halt before taxiing clear and parking at the base of the ski jump. Chains were hooked on to lash the fighter safely down and Dave could safely shut down and make his seat safe. Opening the cockpit, he felt the bitingly cold wind and realised that despite the temperature, he was sweating profusely. The adrenaline rush he had been through made it difficult to unstrap and stand up before he could climb down and walk unsteadily to join the crowd that had formed around the tail of his aircraft. On the windswept and slippery deck, Dave Morgan gazed up at his fin. 
a 20mm anti-aircraft shell, had punched a 6-inch hole through the fin and then exploded, causing considerable damage to both the fin and the tailplane. Looking at the angle of entry, it was clear that the shell had come from nearly head-on and had come very close to taking out the cockpit. They had all got back safely from this first attack on the Argentinian forces and everyone had been blooded. A total of 12 Harriers had delivered 36 bombs against two heavily defended airfields, destroying a large number of enemy aircraft, fuel dumps and buildings, and escaped almost completely unscathed. That evening, Brian Hanrahan, the BBC reporter who was embedded on board Hermes, reported back to the country. He wasn't allowed to say how many aircraft had taken part in the raid, so whilst we were crowded around our TV sets, trying to find out what was happening to our territory some 8,000 miles away, we heard the now famous phrase that he used. I'm not allowed to say how many planes joined the raid, but I counted them all out, and I counted them all back. Their pilots were unhurt, cheerful, and jubilant, giving thumbs up signs. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>